Well, now that my wife is out of the room, I can go ahead and start my message. Because uh, my wife and daughter have been watching movies together the past couple of weeks. Especially the Christmas ones. You know what I'm talking about. A guy and a girl meet. They dislike each other at first. But then they fall for each other. And then some crisis or argument happens, but fortunately, they reconcile just in time for Christmas. Pretty much every Hallmark movie right there in a nutshell, right? Now one of the things that I've noticed about Christmas movies is almost every one of them claims to be something about the true meaning of Christmas. But sadly... Not very many of them even included. You see, the problem is that the world's idea of the true meaning of Christmas is simply to be nice to other people. Now, that's not a bad message. It's just not the meaning of Christmas. And and not even really close. But be nice is all the world has to offer. Be nice. Help others. Now, it's a great sentiment, but it's not the message of Christmas. And as good as the message to treat others well is, God offers something that is so much more. Isaiah proclaimed centuries before the event, For to us is born a child, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the meaning of Christmas. That God saw man's need for a Savior from the very beginning of the world. In fact, even before the beginning of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him. And that choice, Paul says, was made in love. Over the past three Sundays, I've been sharing with you snippets regarding the history, the meaning, the focus of Advent. And I mentioned the four candles and how each candle represents one of the themes of Advent. The first Sunday, the theme was hope or promise. And we looked at, at one of the, at the, we looked at the hope that you and I can have as we prepare for the grand coming of the bridegroom. Our lights shining brightly. The second Sunday, the Advent theme was preparation or waiting or prophecy. And again, we examined how our understanding of just who the Master truly is plays a major role 
as to what we will do with the resources that He's given us as we wait for His return. Now this past Sunday, the theme was joy or peace. And the focus was on how we can wait productively for the harvest. Joyfully and, peace, and, and peacefully, actually, knowing that the wheat, that we as the wheat and not the weeds, will receive a reward one day. And today, our Advent focus is that of love. Not being nice, though being nice is certainly a part of love, but understanding and living the sacrificial love that is the meaning of Christmas. Now, I could have easily chosen as my text for today, John 3.16. You know the passage. Many of you have memorized it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. God loved in such a way to such an extent that He gave. Now, talk about a passage that's ripe for explaining gift-giving at Christmas. We could use that idea right there. God gave His one and only Son so that we could be saved. And not only that, His love was not to condemn. We're so good at that. Somebody once said that, that Christians are the only ones to kick their soldiers when they're down. We're so quick at condemning and pointing fingers, telling stories. One of the worst forms of gossip. I got out from behind the pulpit. I wanted to get on my soapbox. <laughs> One of the worst forms of gossip is people calling other people like this. Hey, did you hear about Bobby Sue? We need to be praying for her because blah, 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 blah. All of the gory details that don't need to be shared. God knows. Instead, hey, did you hear about Bobby Joe? We need to be praying for Bobby Joe, okay? God knows what's going on. Just be praying for Bobby Joe. He came to shed light. Not to bring more darkness. Or what about how Paul describes that gift in Romans 5, 6-8? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one 
will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. God sent His one and only Son to not only be the cute little baby in the manger, a feeding trough, a lowly stable, but He sent that Son to die as an unblemished lamb so that our sins could be forgiven. You see, the meaning of Christmas is all about love. Sacrificial love. Love that involves giving, listen to me, giving in spite of not because of. Giving in spite of who? And in spite of what those people may or may not do to us. So I chose a parable, a story that Jesus told to, to help us understand exactly what that love should look like. What the results of that love might be. And so let's go. To God's Word. It's Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repair you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think provided to a neighbor, provided to be a neighbor, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Did you notice the context? The context for this parable is that a lawyer was trying to test Jesus. You see, Jesus was the new teacher in town. 
And he really didn't have the credentials that the religious leaders wanted or even expected. And putting Jesus to the test was not all that uncommon. Common thesaurus. I always have a hard time naming those books. The thesaurus of the Bible lists ten different incidents. One of them twice. To various attempts to test Jesus. By the Pharisees. By the Sadducees. And in this case, by an expert in the law, an expert in the Torah. Notice also that the question put to Jesus was not, what must I believe to inherit eternal life? But what must I do? And equally important, I believe, is that Jesus didn't immediately correct him by saying something like, Sir, why do you ask me what we must do? We're saved by faith, not by works. No. The section, the paracope, ends with go, do. Both verbs. Both action words. And so he puts the question back to the lawyer, the legal expert. What's written in the law? What do you read there? Or how do you understand it as an expert in the law? And the lawyer responds by going back to the Torah, with, for which he's very familiar, a portion of the great Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't know it already, love's an action word. Don't think for a minute, folks, if you're in a relationship, that that other person's going to be comfortable with just the idea that you love them in your head. You better be loving them with your behavior and your actions as well. Amen? It's an action word. Notice with me how Jesus answered. You have the right answer. Do this and you'll live. Again, I think it's very important not only what Jesus said, but what He didn't say. You see, it's not just knowing the right answer, but doing it. Great judgment passages, more than one. People get to the pearly gates. Lord, Lord. I did this. I did that. And what's he say? Depart from me. I never knew you. It's not just knowing the right answer, but it's doing it. Doing what? Loving God with the totality of our being. Our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And loving your neighbor. Now, do you understand what that answer does? It gives us the shape of the cross. Love God with the totality of your being, but also love your neighbors. There is a vertical dimension to it, but there's also an equal horizontal dimension to it. But did you notice what came next? 
the lawyer felt a little bit uneasy with Jesus' answer. Maybe because when Jesus said, do this, he might have had a little bit of a guilty conscience. So Luke writes that the lawyer asked another question because Luke says he was wanting to justify himself. And it was a question regarding just exactly who our neighbor might be. And I think the question is based on two things. Not only his knowledge of his own behavior in which he was seeking to justify himself, but also a need for clarity. Because the consensus at that time, and I'm not sure it's that much different today, the consensus was that our neighbor is someone just like us, someone who believes just like us, or very similar. So realistically, his question to Jesus was, how can I spot others who belong to God's people so that I can love them? And Jesus answered that question with a parable. The story was one of which his hearers would have been very familiar. A traveler on the road to Jericho falling into the hands of robbers. And by the way, Wednesday night Bible study group, lace days. Not just petty thieves. Lace days. Very likely mercenaries or zealots. And they were people who had turned insurgent for some presumed righteous cause because they thought by seeking the wrath of man they could somehow work out what they presumed to be God's righteousness. Yes, they robbed by force and violence, but their number one enemy was Rome. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, a road that descends some 3,300 feet in just seven miles runs through desert and rocky country and it was well suited for these brigands to hide and escape capture now here's the shock value of the parable it would be the the thing that caught the attention of the listeners not that somebody was robbed and beaten but the shock value would be the identification of the travelers. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And I hope you noticed how Jesus' parable makes the despised Samaritan the hero. And the scripture believing and obeying priest and Levite are the villains. You see, the parable teaches us that being a true believer involves not just our position, but our practice. Not just our position. Not, not even who our family might be or some role we might have in leadership or involvement in the church. But what are we doing? Now, those hearers... Jews who were loyal to the scriptures, they would have been concerned about the laws of ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. And among these laws were laws that dealt with the uncleanness that comes when and is contracted from touching a dead body. And though the motives aren't really discussed by Jesus, 
His hearers, including that lawyer who was trying to justify himself, they would have thought upon hearing that the priest passed by on the other side of the road without offering help, they would have thought that maybe the priest was afraid of being ambushed himself. Or, just as likely, he would fear defiling himself and being rendered richly unclean so that he couldn't do his job in the temple. And so, he would have justified the priest in his own eyes. And he would have felt justified. However, since we're not told, I believe we're forced to recognize that the essential point Jesus is making is that the priest failed to show love. In verse 32, what happened... uh, in the case of the priest, is repeated with a Levite, one of those who worked in the temple, involved in the religious orders and and taking care of having everything ready for worship. He did just as the priest did. So both the priest and the Levite fail. But in the story... It's the despised Samaritan who steps up and meets the need at hand. Because, we're told, he had compassion. Compassion. That's exactly the same word that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 1 verse 8. When he yearns for them, that is the Christians at Philippi, he yearns for them with the affection, the compassion of Christ Jesus. Same word. In other words, the Samaritan has got what it takes. And you and I also need to understand the the hatred, the enmity. Jews and Samaritans hated one another. In fact, it was so intense that rabbis were even saying that acceptance of alms by a Jew from a Samaritan is what was delaying the redemption of Israel. And a maxim quickly emerged found in the Babylonian Talmud that no Jew need to trouble himself to save a Samaritan's life. So in light of the existing tensions... Jewish hearers of Jesus' story could be expected to respond negatively to any references to Samaritans. And so it is that Charles Talbert has written in his commentary, and I'm going to quote him, This demands the hearers say what for them cannot be said. What is a contradiction in terms? Bad Samaritan cannot be good, and good priest and Levite cannot be bad. And if a hearer accepts the judgment of the parable, then one's whole world of values is shattered. It was so difficult for the lawyer to admit that the Samaritan was the good guy when Jesus asked him which of the three was the neighbor, that the Samaritan could only answer The one who showed mercy. He just could not say Samaritan. 
The third thing I think we should learn from this parable is that true love involves investment. If it doesn't cost, it's not worth it. If you're not willing to put a big investment down, it doesn't mean that much to you. After investing his time, after rendering first aid, the Samaritan placed the man on his own donkey to take him to an inn where he could be cared for properly. And we're told by Jesus that it was the next day when the Samaritan had to go on to, with his journey. He wasn't just traveling with nothing to do. He was on a trip. But he stopped, inconvenienced himself, placed himself in harm, and then invested. And since the man had been stripped and left penniless, the Samaritan himself made the advance payment that would be necessary for the innkeeper to keep the man. And according to Jeremias, a day's board at that time cost about a twelfth of a denarius. The, the payment that he had gave in advance was, was sufficient for several days. Thus, the Samaritan bound that innkeeper to look after the man as long as was necessary and even promised him that he would return the same route to cover any additional expenses. Would that have been required? No. He didn't know that man that was beaten up. That wasn't the only road to Jerusalem. It wasn't even the safest road. But it was the loving and the merciful thing to do. And so not only the parable ends rather abruptly, but so does the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer. The neighbor is the one who shows mercy, love, compassion. The neighbor is the one who needs mercy, who needs love, who needs compassion. So often we as a church have been guilty of telling people, well, get your act together, get cleaned up, and then come to church. No. Come to church. And God will do the cleaning up and getting the act together. Amen. And if we understand the meaning of this parable, that our salvation is not dependent upon any position that we might have in the church or who our parents might be or even what we believe in our heads. Not just what we know, but what we do. If we understand that the meaning is, is that God loved us in such a way that He, filled with compassion, gave... If we understand that He loved in such a way that while we were still sinners, He provided for our forgiveness. If I wait till the other person gets everything right for me to forgive them, it might not ever take place. I have a very close friend 
who after 25 years is still grieving because he never went and made things right with his father and when he found out his father was dying he could not get there in time. Forgiveness does not depend on them. It's not for their benefit. Dependence, forgiveness depends on what we are willing to humble ourselves and do and it's for our benefit to forgive. Well, if we understand that the meaning of the whole Christmas story is that it's not about palaces and earthly wealth. I know you've seen those television evangelists with their nice pretty gold chairs and, and you've heard about the big mansions they live in and the jets they fly. What a sad omen on Christian leadership. When we understand that it's not about that, but it has to do with a young teenage girl, probably 13 to 15, who becomes a mother in a lowly, stinky stable among ceremonially unclean shepherds. They couldn't go to the temple to worship because they were handling all the time those unclean sheep. But that is where God chose to deliver His merciful care package for you and I. And if we understand that, then the only thing left to do is to accept the challenge that Jesus issues to the lawyer. Which is my Christmas challenge for you today. You go. And do likewise. Let's pray.